You're listening to ReachMD. Welcome to Genetically Speaking, produced in cooperation with the American Society of Human Genetics, advancing human genetics in science, health, and society. Now here's your host, Dr. Howard Levy, medical geneticist in Lutherville, Maryland, and assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I'm Dr. Howard Levy from Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host today, and with me today is Dr. Robert Green, director of the Genomes to People Research Program in Translational Genomics and Health Outcomes at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Today, we'll be discussing translational genomics. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Howard. I understand, Robert, you've had a bit of an unusual journey to becoming a geneticist. Would you like to tell us more about that? Sure. It's, uh, it's happened very organically. I was a neurologist, and I got interested because I was studying Alzheimer's disease, and people who were family members of Alzheimer's disease patients wanted to get back genetic information about their own risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And I went to some geneticist friends, and they said, absolutely not. You cannot possibly responsibly give that information back. And uh, being a little contrarian, I said, why? And they said, because it will do them great harm. And I said, why? And they, and they just really believed this. And of course, in the clinical context, I came to understand later as a geneticist, um, it is upsetting to receive particularly Mendelian risk information. But what that prompted us to do was design a series of trials where we actually empirically asked, does getting this kind of risk information dramatically or catastrophically distress people? And as you know, we have demonstrated that at least in our research context, it does not. And that got me so interested in genetics and genomics in general that I went and retrained as a medical geneticist um, in my 50s. I think I was the world's oldest genetics fellow. And uh, it that, was. I gotta say, that shows an immense love for knowledge and learning to go all the way back to fellowship training at that stage of life. It was an extraordinarily positive experience. And I would just say to anybody who is thinking of reviving their intellectual life, um, it was well worth it. It, it. it did not seem to be a hardship at all. It was extraordinarily exciting. And it's launched me on a whole new phase of my career, and um, so um, I'm a board-certified medical geneticist now. You said that you said you were. You said that you were a neurologist, and you are now a geneticist. Do you no longer consider yourself a neurologist? I really don't. I really fully identify with the new specialty. I mean, I guess I still am boarded in neurology, but um, I don't see neurology patients. I've, I've seen medical genetics patients. I'm doing research in medical genetics, and so. Um, for the most part, I'm sure I, I'm informed by my previous experience, but uh, for the most part, I've really now identified myself and feel very much part of this new and exuberant genetics community. That's wonderful. So after that groundbreaking work that you did on the REVEAL study with revealing Alzheimer's disease risk, tell us about what you're working on now, please. Well, thank you so much for calling it that, um, but it got me excited about the coming uh, uh, revolution in sequencing and other omics. And uh, it was fairly easy to design uh, a trial where you actually asked a question about one SNP. Um, and let's one, just make sure variation. listeners understand what a SNP is. Sure. One, one single variant that puts you at increased risk for Alzheimer's disease or, or does not. Right. And the abbreviation SNP. A single nucleotide uh, variant. Single nucleotide polymorphism. Polymorphism. Um, but what is much harder is designing a clinical trial when you're getting lots of different pieces of information. So you might get pieces of information that say your risk of condition A is elevated, your risk of condition B is depressed, your risk of condition C is average. How in the world do you track what are the outcomes 
of getting that kind of avalanche of information. And that, that's been and continues to be a huge challenge. We have not, I wouldn't say we've, we've met it, but we are, we are trying in different ways to meet it with our current studies. So is that what you are referring to when you discuss translational genomics and health outcomes? That's right. You know, you, you've got worm doctors who believe their work is translational, and at some level it is. But, but we've added the health outcomes because my own background is a public health background as well. And um, we're really concentrating on how genomes are used at the individual level, how people make choices about their health with uh, genetic information, and how systems may in the future utilize genetic and genomic information to drive uh, decision support, to drive medical outcomes, and actually see if we can track some of those outcomes and costs. So it's, uh, it's a very public health oriented, at least in my mind, uh, mm -hmm. concept. So that's a lot of stuff. What are you actually working on now? So the hot topic is uh, right now, as you know, is, is um, what do we do now that we can sequence people? And who should we be sequencing? And what are the outcomes of that sequencing? So in the uh, NHGRI-funded MedSeq project, we're one of the CSER grants, or Clinical Sequencing Exploratory Research Grants. And in the MedSeq project, we actually have a group of people who have a heritable disease, in this case, cardiomyopathy, and a group of people who are ostensibly healthy middle-aged people. And they have no identified hereditary disease in them or in their families. And in each of those groups, we're conducting a pilot randomized trial where one half of the group gets whole genome sequencing. And we're not sort of hiding them away in a corner where this is given to them in a research protocol and they don't, uh, you know, this is the whole hog. that it, It's sent to their primary, a report is sent to their primary care doctor. The report goes into the medical re, uh, record and they have to live with the consequences of this, whatever those consequences are, insurance, uncertainty, future outcomes, additional diagnostic testing, and we're actually tracking what is it that, that, that they have to live with. What is it they do with the information? Not just how they respond to it psychologically, though we're certainly interested in that, but how do their doctors respond to it? How do, what are the choices their doctors make, and what are the choices these patients make together with their doctors? So it's a fascinating study. Obviously, with the cost of all this, it's a sample size that's just a couple hundred people. It's not going to answer definitively the questions, but we think it's going to point out whether or not it's even feasible to do studies of this nature. So you mentioned two arms and two groups. Is that, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that study design? Yeah, it's basically, I guess you'd say, two parallel pilot randomized clinical trials, one in one group and one in another. And uh, one of the interesting things was what, what do you give the people you're not giving sequencing to? What's your control? What's exactly, your Exactly. That's what I was getting at. What's the other group getting? So the other get group is simply getting their standard of care. But we thought, well, that's a little deceptive, and it's really hard to get anybody excited about that. So we did add something to each group. Each group gets a good family history, and each group requires that the physician involved um, actually go through that family history with the patient. So we felt that, you know, even though that's not done as much as it should be, and I think you've been an advocate for the family history uh, very much so, um, and we know that people don't do it enough, we thought we'd put that in as a formal part of our protocol, frankly, just to give each arm something to do. Mm -hmm. And because it's not really good care to give any kind of sequence results back without a family history. Fantastic. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Howard Levy from Johns Hopkins University, and I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Green from the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. 
We're talking about translational genomics and health outcomes research. So you've described for us this MedSeq project doing whole genome sequencing on patients with cardiomyopathy as well as people with no specific health condition. Tell us a little bit more, if you would, about that second group, the folks with no specific health condition. What are you looking for there? So there are genetic variants, mutations, if you will, that are associated with diseases that we think are more penetrant, that we think actually you're more likely to get than not if you have the mutation. Uh, BRCA uh, 1 and 2 uh, are... Uh, breast and ovarian cancer. Breast and ovarian cancers, yeah, thank you, are, are variants of this nature. And there's a big debate going on about whether, for example, all women should be tested for BRCA1 and 2 mutations because all women, or at least all women who wish to be, because they might be able to screen themselves for this cancer predisposition. Now, um, you take that debate and you take the rest of the genome and you could extend that question. You could say, well, what about hereditary dominant cardiomyopathy variants? What about long QT variants? What about Lynch syndrome for colon cancer? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be logical to screen people for this stuff? Uh, whether or not they have a family history, whether, uh, again, if they want it. But we know from public health, you and I and the world knows that sometimes there's unintended downstream outcomes when you start screening a population. Absolutely. So I think this is the nub of the problem right now. Um, is genomics, in particular sequencing at this moment in time, something that can constructively be used to screen the population at some point in the near future? And that's, that's part of what we're getting at with that, with that healthy arm. So you framed it as a debate as to whether women should all be screened for hereditary breast and ovarian cancer or other people should be screened for almost anything else. Just to play devil's advocate, why is it a debate? Why shouldn't we just screen everybody for everything? What's the downside? It is a very attractive narrative to, uh, you know, we know these are bad mutations. Why shouldn't we all want to find them? But the reasons are somewhat subtle. Number one, when you start to screen people, you, you, doctors want to do something about it. And when doctors want to do something about it, that usually means additional tests. Sometimes it means additional procedures. Sometimes it can even be additional surgeries. And we know from a number of public health examples that you can actually trigger more downstream costs, more downstream morbidity, and even some even more downstream deaths by uh, the kind of actions that doctors will take in the face of screening information. It's particularly problematic in genomics because we don't know how penetrant these variants are. We don't really know if you take 100,000 people with a cardiomyopathy variant, we don't actually know how many of them are going to develop cardiomyopathy in their life. Mm -hmm. it, might be, it might be half of them, it might be a quarter of them, it might be only 4% of them. It's probably somewhere in between, but the the, part, the point is we don't really know what that penetrance is. So the cost-benefit equation is always something that has to be considered in any screening program, and we don't quite have the information we need to make that judgment in, in the case of most genomic so It really variants. sounds like you've just argued against the screening. We don't know what the true positive rate is. We don't know about the harms and the costs. Why do this at all? <laughs> well, I think we have to explore it in a research context, 
And I think we have to be prepared for people to do it um, and try to counsel them as best we can because, as I say, the narrative is almost irresistible. People are going to have low-cost sequences available to them. They're going to be able to get it direct to consumer. If the FDA tries to restrict it too much, they'll probably be able to get it offshore. But the point is that if, as sequence costs come down and as interpretation becomes more automated, it's almost inevitable that people will get this information. So we have to understand how to actually communicate the uncertainties. One, one stream of thought would be we have to be certain about all the downstream issues before we ever give it. Another stream of thought is that we're never going to be certain enough. So we have to live in a world where there are a lot of uncertainties and just do a really good job of communicating those uncertainties. Learning to cope with it. Sure. So we've talked about how big the genome is in this interview as well as others in the series. We've talked about the challenges of determining what to consider important enough to return to a patient. How's the MedSeq project addressing this? In the MedSeq project with the healthy individuals, of course, they have no indication for any testing. So everything is essentially a secondary or incidental finding or an unexpected or unanticipated finding, whatever term you want to use sure. for that. What we're doing is taking a very broad view, opening the aperture quite wide. We're, we, we have a translational pipeline that basically looks for all genes that have been associated with any disease and finds loss of function variants and then at the end does a sort of manual curation to see if we think the evidence is good enough and only reports back the ones that meet this sort of semi-rigid criteria for what's called likely pathogenic or pathogenic. In other words, the variants have to rise to a certain threshold of known pathogenicity or highly suspected pathogenicity, and those were returning back. Now, interestingly, only about uh, uh, everybody's getting something back, but it's mostly recessive variants, and we, we already knew... Carrier status for Carrier recessive. status, okay. recessive variants. We already knew that everybody's carrying a couple of carrier sure. variants. It's not too exciting or controversial. But a few people are getting back uh, some quasi-pathogenic variants in some of these conditions we just mentioned, long QT, cancer predisposition. And uh, so MedSeq is giving us a chance to watch people struggle with that, watch the questions that they ask, watch what their doctors do, and at the same time provide a, a very structured safety net so that if they start to go off down a direction that we really think is inappropriate, we can, we can pull them back. Mm -hmm. So can you share any anecdotes about people who have gotten important clinical information and also about people who have gotten uncertain results where you can't really tell them what it means, but we're not sure it's normal? I'll just mention one, which is uh, a gentleman who um, learned that he had an, a variant for an X-linked recessive condition that should have given him short fingers and uh, a little bit of a dysmorphic face and uh, some abnormalities in his bones. That we, we examined him. And he had none of that. But here's the tricky thing. People grow out of that condition. So what I've done now is I've asked him to go back and get us photos of himself as a child. And if possible, ones that include his hands. And we'll see if there are any clues there that whether this condition was penetrant or not. It's actually, so I guess the lesson here is that it's actually harder to do genotype-phenotype correlations in some situations than you might imagine. That's actually not much of a surprise to me, but then again... We're always learning. What's next on the horizon for you? Well, we've just gotten funded to do a similar clinical trial in newborn babies. If you, if you buy the premise that this is something good, then logically it might even be better to do it earlier. 
And so, or a lot worse, babies. That's a very controversial topic. It appears to be controversial. Um, again, I think if we're, it's, it's being done out there in the world. People are talking about it. People are anticipating it. If you're going to do it, if it's going to happen in the world, we ought to be exploring it in a carefully controlled research context. And that's what we're doing in, wait for it, the BabySeq Project. Wow. Well, we look forward to hearing how that goes. I think there's a lot of important questions to be answered there. That's all that we have time for for today, however. My thanks to our guest, Dr. Robert Green, Director of the Genomes to People Research Project in Translational Genomics and Health Outcomes at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We've been discussing translational genomics and health outcome research. I'm your host, Dr. Howard Levy from Johns Hopkins University. Please join us next time. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other series. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Genetically Speaking on ReachMD. If you missed any part of this discussion, you can download this segment and others in the series at reachmd.com slash genetics. Thank you for listening.